Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex and I'm joined today by the usual crew. We have Natasha here. Natasha, how's life? Life is good. I met a listener in the wild. Hello, Brent from PAVE. You were lovely to meet. There you go. We always love saying hi to people in the wild. I've actually gotten recognized outside my house a couple of times in Providence. People are like, oh my gosh, you're right for TechCrunch. And I was like, ah, terrifying. Now you know where I live. <laughs> Anyways, we also have Danny Crichton here. Danny, how are you? Good. I've been recognized one time, but the subway door closed quickly and it was super convenient. And that's the first time someone was actually saved by the New York subway versus condemned <laughs> to hell by it. But before we talk about the show itself and we get into the news and all that, uh, a quick pause to just say thanks to Danny, because this is his last, we think. Friday show with the pod. He will still be taking part in our thematic topical Wednesday bonanzas, but he's stepping back from the news roundup. Danny, tell the people why you have decided to half divorce us. Well, after, you know, years, months, days, how long have I been here? I don't even know anymore. I actually don't know either. I, I, I've been unpacking the numbers. And at some point I realized I've moved into this house and I've been unpacking the numbers for so long that there's no more numbers to unpack. <laughs> I'm done. Fair. And that is okay. To celebrate Danny's final Friday show, he's going to be handling transitions today. So if they're particularly bad, uh, it's fine because it's the last time we can be punished in that manner. And he's at Danny Crichton on Twitter if you want to bully him into being back on the show. Yes. But today, we have a lot of numbers to unpack. So, Danny, good that you're here. We're going to talk about Maven, Monte Carlo, and Launch House raising capital. We have a really interesting cohort of what we call rising seniors in the unicorn decacorn space. We're going to take a look at Brazil through the lens of both IPOs and the latest Nuvim Shop round. So, if you're a Shopify fan, stick around for that. Danny has notes on news economics through the lens of informed, period. And then also, ladies and gentlemen, the best news of all, Yik Yak is back. But to kick things off, Natasha, we are going to start with Maven which is around that we are fascinated by a company we're fascinated by. And it's uh, kind of founded by women and uh, invested in by women. Yeah, I mean, it's a women led company working on women's health that just raised around led by a woman. And it's the first unicorn in the family and children's health space. They work on creating a woman's health clinic that you know sells to employers and kind of embeds in their benefits systems. And then women can kind of get care, anything between preconception to postpartum to even like their kids' primary care up till 10 years old. So seeing that billion dollar valuation was a huge win for the women's health space this week. I'm surprised it didn't happen sooner. I mean, just thinking about how big of a market is that you just described. I mean, healthcare in at least America is worth like $48 trillion a year. And women and children through the age of 10 is a good chunk of the population. So I, I'm almost shocked that we didn't have this story, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. So Chrissy Farr, who reported on the rise of digital health before it was even a beat that we could cover, she's now at Omer's Ventures. She hasn't invested in Maven. But when I talked to her about the round and what it compared to when she was covering the company as a reporter, she was saying that she would often hear critics kind of say that really horrible line of that women's health is too niche. And she feels like it's kind of ironic now to see Maven get into a space with new capital where it can actually help navigate through all the fragmented options within women's health. We've gotten to a stage that there are so many point solutions for fertility, for postpartum depression. And now Maven is hoping to be the place that brings them all together and helps employers offer them all at one point. So we've definitely seen like that whole arc happen. You got to love that women is considered a niche category. More than half the population is women. I mean, men are niche. Yes. <laughs> Like, think That's about the that. Headline. I am always shocked by stuff like this. I, I agree with you 100%, Alex. This is something that should have been there 30 years ago. Yeah. Similar, you see the same pattern in mental health. We've seen a bunch of new startups in the mental health case, not just in wellness, but actual clinical mental health. People are like, wow, there's money in depression. And I'm like, have you read any statistic in the last 50 years in America? 
it's like a third. Yeah. That's not a niche. Totally. And I mean, I think the diversity issues will be more difficult when you look into the women that are served by Maven itself. 40% of their providers are POC, but I think that they're continuing to work because we all know that Black maternal health outcomes are devastatingly worse than their white counterparts. So I think we'll see hopefully an even deeper definition of serving these populations now that there's a unicorn in the category. Yeah. Unicorns tend to kind of like uh, throw their scent into the air and then VCs go running after them like zombies. Just to put some more notes about the round itself out there, it's a Series D, 100 million, co-led by Dragoneer and Lux Capital. Also in the round were Bond, which is the Mary Meeker thing, right, Danny? It is. It is. Yes. I had that right. Good. (laughs) Sequoia, Oak, Icon Ventures, and uh, Oprah Winfrey as well. So it's uh, quite a prestigious group of VCs. And the company's actual economics are really impressive. Apparently, they have near 100% retention, which I presume is is a gross, not a net figure. But not seeing customers churn is always a very good sign in companies. And uh, as one more data point to throw in before we move on, this week, Carrot raised, I think it was like a $75 million Series C. They're in the fertility space. So it just kind of goes to show how big of a market opportunity there is in this space. And now, Danny, I'm going to let you take us into the next topic. Yeah. So if you love casinos and you love stochastic math, Monte Carlo has always been your favorite thing in the world. And what we found out this week, data observability startup, which I know sounds about as exciting as as data observability can be, (laughs) raised $60 million, quote, on the back of rapid ARR growth, not on the front, but on the back. Yes, Monte Carlo did raise $60 million, led by iconic growth. The round was raised at a 4x valuation multiple from its preceding round. That's as much as I could get from them. And so then I, I did what I always do, which is to be a brat. And I did some kind of math magic about what it might have been valued in this preceding round, and then I multiplied that by four. <laughs> and the company did not send me threatening emails about that, so I presume that I got close. It's probably worth between 400 and 700 million dollars now, give or take. All this matters because the company raised earlier this year, so we're seeing another kind of rapid fire funding environment. And to explain to people who don't know what data observability is, data science and big data been big themes forever. The thing is, if the stuff coming in isn't good, then the analysis you'll do is bad. And so Monte Carlo wants to check all your inbound data feeds to make sure they make sense. Does that make sense as an explanation? It totally makes sense. I was actually wondering like where it sits in the world of data lakes and data bricks, because we have a lot of both of those. And I I wasn't sure where to place it. I I think you can think of it as um, if you have a data lake and your data lake is filled with trash, Monte Carlo, they are designed to go and get your different data sources, make sure they don't break. So for instance, you have an app that's pulling in data into your dashboards in the business, and suddenly the API changes, and suddenly those dashboards are broken because the data is now in a different format. It's not what you expect. Monte Carlo is designed to actually ensure the integrity of that data that's not changing under you. It's meant to normatively make sure that the data is what you expect it to be. And if it's not, it triggers a warning to your data engineering team to go, hey, something's wrong here. Go fix it so that things don't break. The only thing that I want to say is I want to amend the analogy a little bit because like you want to prevent trash from being in your data lake. But I would say that what Monte Carlo is, is like a, like a filter upstream from the data lake in the data streams. And it prevents crap from flowing into your data lake. It doesn't take it out. It prevents it from going well, further. I think that taking it out is a pretty unique problem because once you have bad data in your systems, going back and extracting mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. and kind of correcting it super hard. And that's kind of the point behind this. Like it's 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 hard to go back through logs and fix data points. But if Monte Carlo tells you right away, hey, there's an issue here, you can go fix it and then prevent trash from flowing into your data lake. 
And we're talking about data lakes and data bricks because essentially there was a story from Bloomberg last night indicating that data bricks may be raising more capital, unsurprising, at a $38 billion valuation, which is surprising because it was worth $28 billion earlier this year. And I've never seen a company add $10 billion in valuation in six months before. So that's something to chew on. But Monte Carlo, incredibly interesting company. And I'll just throw this out there. The CEO, Bar Moses, she is coming to our SaaS event in October of this year. And I'm very, very excited about that. I was just going to also just give a shout out to Eric Newcomer, who actually broke, I think, the Databricks news before Bloomberg did. Oh, he's doing the independent journalist thing and his scoops have been on point lately. So what a middle finger to his previous employer. <laughs> Good for him. Uh, but I want to move us along because we don't always get to talk about Mecca and the Wailing Wall on the Equity <laughs> podcast because such places are special and unique and are important to billions of people around the world. But sometimes folks can compare the work they do in the startup world to great religious sites. And that is Launch House, the former home of Paris Hilton, which is apparently the Mecca, both literally and metaphorically, for serious numbers of entrepreneurs. <laughs> well Natasha, said. you wrote the story. And I have to say, this has got to be the most ridiculous thing I've ever read in recent time. And that's a really high bar. Wow. Yeah. I mean, as you kind of alluded to, Launch House is a hacker home sort of situation that really began actually in Tulum, Mexico as a house for 18 entrepreneurs in the first few months of work from home, then rented out Paris Hilton's former Beverly Hills mansion and began hosting cohorts of founders who were going from idea to seed stage. And it started by three friends. And now those three friends are founders who have raised actual venture capital money for Launch House. The Mecca and Wailing Wall mention that you just said was actually in relation to what Launch House is trying to do next now that it has VC money. When I asked them how they know that they're going to be able to transfer this physical community to a online community, which is where they see most of their growth going, one of the co-founders basically compared it to how in religion, you don't have to go to the prime religious site in order to be a strong follower and believer in an idea. So that's kind of where that example came in to be. I also thought it was funny, to be fair, but that was kind of his way of describing why he's confident that he's going to be able to transfer that energy into a virtual space. And they're calling it a venture scaled membership community, which I believe is the, the term that Jesus Christ used uh, <laughs> at the Wailing Wall to describe the growth of Christianity. <laughs> There's a couple of issues with Danny's joke there, including timelines. But moving on, they just raised $3 million from Flybridge Capital Partners with participation from Day One Ventures and Graph Ventures, along with like over 100 angels. And normally we don't call out angels because there's so many of them often in these early stage rounds. But in this case, my former boss, Alexia yes. Bonazos, is in there. And so we always have to give Alexia a shout out because I still recall how terrified I was when I interviewed for my first job at TC with Alexia. <laughs> And so, you know, it's good to see her doing cool things. So, Natasha, I want to understand this better. Launch House is going to put together cohorts of companies. They don't take equity. Yeah. And is, is their goal just to bring lots of kind of like-minded people together to have like that creative vision that comes from, you know, kind of like social proximity? Yeah, basically. And I think we're going to see a lot of startups making us ask these same questions, Alex. I feel like community has been something that I've just pushed on because I don't see how it stays constant and really scales which I feel like is controversial, but we just haven't seen an example yet. So it's hard to place your mind there just to validate any confusion listeners or we may have right now. But yes, Alex, they plan to make money through a membership-based community and really try and create a signal, I think, that would rival YC or other kind of startup institutions. Okay, well, listen, Danny is playing the cynical card for us, so I'll play the opposite and be optimistic about this. I think in general, efforts that are put together to help build community 
even though they don't strike me as the most obviously venture backable effort, sure. like it's not enterprise software. I'm not going to diss it until uh, we see how it plays out. And I've actually been closer to the story than you'd think because one of my absolute best friends is actually joining the company. And so I've been uh, I've been quietly not talking to you about it. What? Uh, but shout out Erin Scherfner. She's amazing. That is so uh, cool. Can I add one last bit that might get everyone please. excited? One of the co-founders formerly was a PM at Airbnb, and they are working on a suite of internal like social tools for launch house community members, one of which will be launch house members who want to put up their houses or rooms up for other launch house members to rent out. So he's creating a mini Airbnb just for launch house community members. And I thought that was a really cool full circle moment. This onion, the layers of this onion. <laughs> it can keep going. Keep expanding. If you want. I, I cannot. Look, I, I think it's fine. Look, I, I have no negativity towards this. Hacker House has been around a long time. I think I, what bothers me is the repackaging. Like we've seen these models for 10 years. I actually think they're brilliant on an investment perspective. Like if I was a VC, I, I understand why 100 angels would show up. Like look mm -hmm. at all the projects in the front door. What a great pool, a, a zoo almost, a, an aquarium of so many different bobbles and right. interesting ideas. Makes total sense. How is adventure scaled? I have no idea. Yeah, well, I have no idea. We will see as they try. But speaking about venture scale startups, there are some that have graduated from the early stage, late stage market and have become behemoths on the private market. I want to talk a little bit about kind of the next generation of mega companies that are going to go public. I don't like that transition. I'm going to redo it. Launch House may be a ridiculous startup, but many companies are actually making real money. There's now so many companies making real money that we can no longer cover all of them. So we're just doing it alphabetically. So today we're going to do our C's and D's covering Carta, Chime, Databricks, and Discord. Four major rounds in the C's and D's today. Uh, Alex. Okay, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take that one. Yeah, Danny. So there are a, a number of, of very large companies out there. And what I've been noticing is kind of a cluster uh, of major rounds around companies that we've been covering for a while that have now reached like the scale that Airbnb used to have back when it was super hot, but not yet public. And I feel like we've seen a lot of companies actually, you know, finally go public, DoorDash, Airbnb and so forth. And so it's almost time like we've cleared the decks. And now we need to start thinking about who are the next companies out there that we should be tracking as they raise their final rounds, look to go public, and then create a lot, a lot of liquidity for both investors, founders, and employees. So Carta recently put together a $500 million Series G at a $7.4 billion valuation. And we'll talk about why that number is interesting in a second. Chime also put together very recently $750 million at a $25 billion valuation. I mean, that's like three IPOs in one, but it's a private round because it's 2021. Discord recently reported is looking to raise at about a $15 billion valuation and Databricks, as you mentioned, probably putting together more capital at a $38 billion valuation. Natasha, those numbers wash over me and they almost have no meaning because they're just so large. How does that make you all you feel when you hear those numbers? There's a numbing for sure. I think it's exciting now that you framed it as such that we're getting to a stage where there's enough clearing that we can actually pay attention to. I think in the script, it says the rising seniors of startups, which is so much less flashy. And I think we should just stick with that for the rest of eternity, <laughs> the rising seniors. But evaluations are less interesting than the fact that they can still grow and there's not anyone standing in their way. Well, there's some interesting properties with these companies. So we, we learned that Chime is now EBITDA profitable, which is a huge deal, particularly for such a late stage company. They gained $10 billion in their valuation. So Alex, there's another one of your $10 billion oh, right, uh, yeah. return like right there. And then we learned from Discord that it, uh, it, presumably, we don't know this, but it has an ARR greater than 200 million bucks. So I think it's just one of these constant reminders that these are truly real companies. They're reaching real scale. They do have, in some cases, a lot of competition, particularly Chime and the neobank space. 
But Discord is a one of one. There's really nothing else competing kind of directly in its market. Carta is absolutely a one of one with unique network properties. And um, Alex, you, you sort of alluded to it, but Carta did something really unique with its fundraise that I think only it can do and presumably will start to do for other folks. Carta, if you don't know, put together its own exchange for secondary shares. Now, we all know there's some trading of private equity before companies go public, but it's super opaque. It's expensive. There's bad price discovery. It's not tremendous. Carta went ahead and executed a $100 million secondary transaction of its own stock on its private exchange. And that ended up being purchased at a price of $6.9 billion. So when it went out to raise $500 million more, it just raised it at that price. So it kind of took price control out of the conversation and away from investors and instead went with a crowdsource valuation. And that's cool. But what's cool is that it worked. They actually did raise a half billion at that pre-money price. I think it's amazing because uh, if you think about the power of, of selecting the most ambitious buyers of the stock, like they, they sold 100 million, right? Mm -hmm. so you're getting this little slice of the people who will pay the highest price. And then you're like, you know, that's the price for everyone. Like, that's yeah. not a Dutch auction. That's like, a, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's a jerk like, auction. It's like, yeah. haha, you will pay this <laughs> much. Know, I totally agree. I feel like there's so many questions around this. Obviously, it's a kind of this beautiful marketing stunt. I mean, it would have been a marketing stunt if they didn't actually raise the money. But what happens if the company's shares aren't worth to outsiders what the founders think that they are, which Connie brought up in her story? Like, what if that really ambitious slice is like, actually, you're worth a lot less. Can you ignore the Carter valuation or can Carta ignore Carta's own valuation and try and raise at a higher? Think about it this way. Like, the Danny Incorporated sells $50 million on secondary auction on Carta, gets a $1 billion valuation, goes to Alex's venture capital firm. And we're like, hell no. Here's why it's actually okay for Danny, because some other investor is going to roll up and offer to pay more. Like, I mean, it's That's 2021. <laughs> it's the, 2021. The question will have a lot more like heft, Natasha, in a down market versus today when everything's worth infinite money. Going back to Chime, though, and thinking about this cohort of companies, Chime was EBITDA profitable last year. And I confirmed that it wasn't adjusted EBITDA. It was real EBITDA, which was actually wow. relatively... Yeah, we ever get one of those? I know. It, it literally felt like a gift. And then they raised three quarters of a billion dollars. Trying to parse that. Are they just getting ready for a direct listing? So they're going to raise now ahead of time. Did they take up their burn? Are they no longer EBITDA profitable? I have... Uh, there's something there that I'm missing that I can't quite sure. get my finger on, if that makes sense. Well, I think we've seen, I mean, I, I don't know in the context of time because we don't know the internal deliberations, but we have seen with Coinbase in the last uh, couple of weeks that its cash position has actually increased dramatically, partially as a response to regulator clampdowns on the, on the blockchain space. So th there is a presumption that having a cushion, expanding that cushion, particularly at a time when financial regulations are in flux, you know, is a safe value proposition. And, and frankly, if I was getting money at this new price, I'd be taking all I can. Yeah. I mean, a little bit of dollars at an extremely high price, a little bit, tiny bit of dilution. What's one 2% dilution to have some safety in your back pocket? But I want to go with one more question here, which is, at what point do we stop talking about unicorns? <laughs> I mean, unicorns are like such a useless new phrase. Like we're talking about the decacorn horde here in, in, the, in the script. And that to me is like my, my do bar. Like there's 55 decacorns. Well, there, there's 55 worth seven and a half billion and 38 worth. Yeah. Uh, okay. Can I just billion. say as a side note, this is not relevant to people listening to the show. So you can fast forward 20 seconds, but like, why did we cut off at seven and a half billion? Is that some sort of like decacorn with its tail cut off? <laughs> there are 55 companies above $7.47 billion. It's, what an it's, arbitrary number. It's because, this. so one, I went to the, the CB Insights Unicorn leaderboard and I stole it and I put it into Google Sheets. And that's where I got these, these I feel numbers like I'm not going to make an argument other than that. That is such a fair and thing to say. 
comma, and the reason why I picked seven and a half billion and ten billion is that Carta is now worth seven point four. So I thought, wow. okay, what's the threshold right above that? And really, what I wanted to do was have a slightly wider uh, net than just the ten billion because there were so many companies between Carta and the ten billion dollar mark. I wanted to have both data sets in there. Now you can tell me that's stupid. It was early in the morning. I was drinking coffee, but that was the thought process behind it. So I'll take it. And we should keep this in the show because I'm sure people had questions. All right, Danny, take us to Brazil, please. Get on the plane and fly us. (laughs) Well, I think there's something called the Rio trade, which is uh, when people are getting super ambitious, they try to make huge investments, make a lot of money. And if it doesn't pan out, you go to Rio. The problem is you can make a lot of money in Rio these days. So it no longer has the same meaning anymore because, wow, there are a lot of big deals going on. Unicorns galore. And the one that cooked us into this was uh, Nuvim Shop, which yeah. raised $500 million at a $3.1 billion valuation. Literally weeks, I guess months, but like weeks after its last fundraise. 20 weeks ago, five months. I mean, it's not, it's not that long ago. The new round, $500 million, was co-led by Insight and Tiger Global. Two names, gosh, we just never hear about anymore. <laughs> I haven't heard from Inside and Tiger in like 12 minutes. It's crazy. That flight to Brazil is a really long flight. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it is a long flight. It's worth it, though. The people and the food are amazing. Everyone should go. It's a great place. Nuvem Shop, why do we care? Well, it's kind of Latin America's answer to Shopify, if you will. Everyone knows Mercado Libre, kind of the analog to Amazon in Latin America. Nuvem Shop, much like Shopify, is trying to give individual companies or retailers their own e-commerce setup away from the main central hub. So it's something that we all really understand, which I think probably helped investors uh, plonk so much capital into it. But Newfound Shop has hit real scale, Natasha. Yeah, I mean, they did 14 million transactions in 2020. And I was really surprised by their merchant growth as well, but also expected because of how much has really digitized over the past year. They had 20,000 merchants in 2020, 80,000 in March, and now are around more than 90,000 merchants across Brazil, Mexico, and Argentina. So there's a lot of growth and obviously consumers are leading the charge yet again. And this kind of leads to a question of where do these companies go public? Because Brazil has as Nubank, it has Nuvem Shop. It's got a number of companies that are now worth a bisquillion dollars because they've built amazing businesses. And, you know, traditionally, I think we would say, well, they're going to go public on the Nasdaq or the NICE. You know, they're not going to go to Europe. They're not going to go to Asia. And local markets probably can't support that level of liquidity or whatever. But there's a slight change in the winds. And I wrote about this this week. So I'm going to get on my, my soapbox for like 20 seconds and then I'll Please climb do. off of it. But if you look at the market for Brazilian public companies, it's a couple hundred. They're mostly on the B3 exchange. And we have begun to see local tech companies go public on Brazilian exchanges, which I think is, is, is really cool and speaks well to the maturity of the Brazilian tech ecosystem. And so the question then becomes, where do Nubank and, and Nufum Shop debut? And really, I think for the biggest companies, in Brazil, we're still going to see U.S. listings or dual listings. But I, I think for companies in the Brazilian market that aren't going to become worth, you know, a, a new bank level amount of money, domestic liquidity could be the future. And uh, we talked to some folks from Brazil about this trend and talked to a couple of public companies in Brazil. And there's a lot of optimism, really, that Brazil could have its own own strong market. And this fits, I think, Danny, into the, the trend we saw with Adyen going public on a smaller European exchange. And I would say also the kind of the retrenchment of Chinese companies to the Hong Kong exchanges. I've gotten pitches for the Australian stock exchange IPOs. Toronto has shown up in a couple of cases. It's definitely small numbers. And and the largest companies still come to New York because it's the largest bourse. It has the most market trade. It has the most volume. Same with the London Stock Exchange, occasionally Frankfurt. But I, I do think in Brazil, there's a lot of concerns around local capital. There are capital controls. There's a lot of challenging financials going on in the local market. So it'll be interesting to see how much uh, folks want to tap into local 
economics versus international economics, or if they do dual float yeah. and actually do both. And I expect a little bit of dual floating as well in some of these companies. Are there any negatives to listing on two stock markets? Like, why doesn't everyone do that? Yeah, Danny, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's more work. It's more work. It, yeah. It's re you're regulated by multiple agencies in multiple places. In some cases, those those regulations are quite incompatible, which means you might have to have completely separate books, different numbers. And that can oftentimes give a lot more information about your business, right? Because if you're Fiscal calendars are slightly off because to fit the regulatory differences, or if you have to disclose things in different ways, you can actually back out numbers you wouldn't otherwise be able to do because you have two different sets with different definitions. So you can, you know, diff them and, and get some interesting intel out of them. So, I mean, they're, they're good when useful. And in some cases, classically, China is a good example. It's relatively easy because Hong Kong developed its markets with that as a context. Got but it. I think for places like Brazil or Europe, that is much less common and it's not a well-trodden path. Two more things and then we're going to talk about newsonomics because that's everyone's favorite topic on the show because we all get paid by news, amazingly enough, still. One, shout out to Anaheim, my collaborator on this Brazilian IPO piece. She's amazing and doesn't get enough credit. So I just want to make sure that everyone goes and follows yes, her on Twitter. Out. She's awesome. And uh, there are also advantages to being domestic to Brazil or really these other markets that we're describing, Frankfurt, Toronto, et cetera. Because if you go public on the NASDAQ, you are really amongst the biggest technology companies in the world. It's hard to stand out. And uh, I think it was Aaron Levy, a long time ago, back when Boxing Public, I, I asked him how it was going. And he's like, well, it's interesting. You know, we were this really hot unicorn and now we're a small public company. <laughs> and he was like, it's a big transition. And so it's uh, if you want to be a bigger fish in a smaller pond and you're a Brazilian tech company, going public locally could give you a bit more bang for your buck, as it were. But let's put that aside. And Danny, you're going to explain to us now how some folks from Berlin have saved news. I don't know if anyone can save news, but some people are trying, and that's great. So informed, that's lowercase i, period, informed, period, is uh, a new initiative uh, out of Berlin that's trying to, they didn't want to be called the Spotify of news. The analogy they use is the class pass of news, um, which I don't know is a good analogy. Yeah, wait, that's so not Spotify is, is worth so much more money. <laughs> I disagree. I disagree with a lot of the branding so far, Danny. Please make me like this company. <laughs> um, so started earlier this year working with a couple of notable publications like uh, Financial Times, Economist, Washington Post, Bloomberg, and others. And um, the goal here is to create essentially reading lists. The idea is think of something like the war in Afghanistan, lots of great coverage from a lot of great publications. They're all paywall behind very expensive price points. They want to coagulate all those together into one digestible list that also has a summary. So if you just want to read the summary, you can read it quickly. If you want to dive into this subject, they'll give you different pieces, parts. They'll give you news, they'll give you opinion. And, and the concept is to really focus on Gen Z. And the part of the story here. There's definitely a graveyard uh, riven with tombstones of new st economic startups that are trying to do passes and subscription products that like layer on top of a bunch of other media companies. All have failed. But this one is trying to focus on Gen Z. And the idea here is that Gen Z can't pay $40 a month for Bloomberg or some you know, financial times, but they will pay a couple bucks a month to get started and to access some of the news and analysis from these publications. I don't hate bundling. I mean, the old joke is that all tech is just bundling and unbundling. Here's another example of that. But anything to make news and high quality news, both economically viable and more affordable is great because as people say, the truth is paywalled and the lies are free, uh, which is an issue we have uh, in terms of news equity and, and access to quality information. The common tweet we get, and Danny, I know you have thoughts on this, is people wish that we would just let them read one article and that's it. And they would just pay to access one article. 
And I feel like that is its own wormhole or rabbit hole to go down. This seems like a way to meet in the middle with actual publishers as well. Like I don't see publishers ever doing the one article access bit, but I do see them giving like a morning brew style preview to a bunch of the news that their ecosystem is on about. How optimistic are you about the company? Obviously enough to write about them. I would say the optimism is, is really focused on the people. So yeah. uh, among the founders, uh, the ex uh, head of global markets for Spotify is, is sort of the business lead. The CEO was formerly a lead engineer on Wonderlist and was uh, the chief product manager for a European site called The European. And then they have a business journalist. So it has like the business talent. It has the journalism talent. It has the right folks around there. The big question is, is it the right time? And, yeah. and the hope here is that, one, big subscription products have already reached saturation. So, that, you know, Bloomberg, Financial Times, even something like Echo Crunch could have reached its core customers, everyone subscribed, but like, what's the next stage for growth? They want to be the next stage for growth. And the hope is, is that Gen Z, they've done a ton of studies with Gen Z, and they want to read the big, old, boring publications. They just can't afford them, is sort yeah. of uh, the pitch here. And so they, they've called it the ability to snack or to eat is the idea of the model. So this fits into a broader array of stuff we've been tracking. We talked about the creator economy a couple of weeks ago. We've talked about Pico, Forbes Media, looking to go public via SPAC is the latest bit of reporting out there. BuzzFeed is going public via SPAC. And we're being bought by Apollo. So lots is going on in the, forgot, the greater Alex. world of, of Why'd media. Why'd you remind me? <laughs> well, I mean, look, people forgot. Like I keep telling people that are trying to hire me that I'm not going anywhere because one, the deal hasn't closed yet. So I don't even know what the future looks like. Uh, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's right. Is that deal not done? I'm like, no, it's not. I'm still working for Verizon right now. It's very close. So I got a new insurance card last night. Oh, God. I don't know We're what We're now that Yahoo. Means. It's on the board. Danny Crichton leaves Equity Pod as Apollo acquisition looms in the background. Yeah, there you go. That's the headline. Yes, well, yes. no, no, no. It's even worse than that. Danny half breaks up with Equity, <laughs> demands partial custody of the Wednesday episodes. All right. <laughs> let's close out today with a bit of technology history, if we can. So. Going back in time to when social applications were trendy, hot, and a big focus inside of Silicon Valley and on the pages of TechCrunch, there were a couple of things out there called Yik Yak and Secret, and they were neat places to talk about other people. And they were a blast. They were also incredibly toxic. And they died because they were so toxic, they poisoned their own communities, and they faded away into essentially nothing. And Natasha Yik Yak, apparently is back. Yeah. A new team has bought the rights to the old app and they're relaunching. They did kind of come out the gate with a really strong message about combating bullying and hate speech. So it's kind of like one strike and you're out. We'll see how that scales. But they're, they're also trying to build around location-based sharing, which I think Yikak tried to do in its last few years was move beyond anonymous discussions to talking to people near you and kind of meeting up in person as well. So we did see them return. I was personally really excited about it, even with the nuance you mentioned. And a lot of my friends were because I only experienced it for one year in college. And that was amazing. And then it died. So T I'm tell us happy. about that, because not everyone was around when Yikik was, was blowing up or they weren't at, didn't have friends who used it. So when you were in college using this, why was it so interesting? Because I, I want to recapture that moment of magic, if you will. It was so special because people didn't use Twitter as meme accounts at that point. And a lot of my friends still don't. They aren't like active tweeters because they feel pressure and they they just don't want to even open their Twitters up to the public. So Yik Yak gave them an anonymous place to be really funny and basically post their tweet drafts, <laughs> as they would say. And so a lot of my friends were just really funny on it. And it was fun to go on it and see people not worry too much about 
how it looks for their personal brand and more look at like how to make funny jokes about like the third floor smelling sus. I mean, that was like the really optimistic perspective of Yik Yak. When it died, I think a lot of that moved to Twitter. And I don't know who asked for this back. I'm just curious how it came back. Danny, how familiar are you with Yik Yak? I was quite familiar with it. I mean, it was a huge deal. But look, this is a tough market. I, I think uh, VCs have traditionally hated anonymous social networks because not only do they tend to bring a lot of abuse and a lot of challenges from the product side, you can't advertise because if they're truly anonymous, you don't know who these people are, you can't monetize it. So there's always been a challenge. This time around, they're asking for phone numbers. So you are sort of very, you know, that is actually a verification step. One wonders what that phone number is going to be used for. And we don't know who the owners are. Uh, it's not the original team, I think, to be clear. Someone had bought it. It's based out of Nashville. They did not return comment to our questions of any questions at all. So all we know <laughs> is that this app that's been dead for six, seven years is back. We also know that some of its engineers probably work at Square today and definitely have thoughts. So we should go to Square's employee page. Because for people who don't know, Square hired a ton of Yik Yak's former employees when it shut down for just $1 million. So I think there's some sourcing that could be done if we're really feeling thirsty for it. Well, and look, look, there's only been one, I think, anonymous app that's worked really well, which is Blind, which we've talked about occasionally over the years. But Blind, which is focused on workplace chatter, verifies you have an active work email address. And that's enough to kind of cut abuse because you know that the people you're talking to are actual colleagues. You could run into them in the hallway. I just want to say, if we're going to be bringing back apps that died, I have a couple that I would like Do to share. have back. Remember Meerkat, Danny? Were you oh, I remember Meerkat. Were you at TC when Meerkat blew up? No, I was a VC back then. I was, I was encouraged heavily to try to invest in it. <laughs> Glad you didn't. No so way. Meerkat was like a way to like live stream before... There was Periscope on Twitter. Okay. It was like, pull out your phone, click a button, you're live. And so like at TC, we were like running around the office, like live streaming each other and just causing chaos. And it was a blast. Uh, I also want Yo to come back. Yo was great. That's all it did was just, you could just, Yo, that was the whole app. Um, there was like, a bunch but- of this, this like whimsical tech that was really, really fun. Now everyone's building like API rails for FinTech Infra. Boring. I want to have fun. Dispo is the last startup that's made me feel fun even though they've had a struggled past. Like, I feel like that team is the only one that is making me feel some type of way right now. Yeah, I, I like their team on Twitter too. Listen, guys, we have to wrap it up here. We're low on time. Danny, thank you for your long tour of duty on the roundups. We are very glad to keep you on the Wednesday shows. And uh, at some point, we're going to have a third co-host. So we'll get to work on that because uh, we have a week to sort it out. So hugs, everyone. Thank you, Danny. And uh, we'll be back Monday morning. Goodbye.